You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen. On sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herb Tell. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, she's back again. It's been a little bit since we've seen her, but we're always thrilled to have her back. She's an expert in healthcare policy, another one of our great young voices contributors. Elise Amidro has rejoined the program. Welcome back. How are you? Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thrilled to have you back. Appreciate you taking time in your busy schedule. Uh, let's talk about um, the problem. See, this is one of those things where it's like everybody knows it's a problem. Everybody talks about it. Nobody wants to do anything about it. And we already know how this goes because we've seen it with Omnibus. We've seen it with government funding. We, you pick whatever you want. We even did this with health care reform. If you go all the way back to the ACA, our Congress in America seems to only be able to legislate by emergencies. They've really got an emergency pending on the horizon with uh, Medicare. Where do we even start with this? Because the clock's ticking. We've been saying it for 20, 30, 40 years, all my adult life. But we're getting within three, four, five years of this thing now. How do we even start getting the people to pay attention to this thing? That's a great question. There are many, many ways we can get people to pay attention, but it's hard to do it when the emergency doesn't feel real. So pretty much taking a step back, what we're talking about here is, is Medicare Part A. It's the part that pays for the hospital services of people who are on Medicare. For the most part, it's people who are elderly, and there's just not enough money to go around for their services. So what's going to happen is currently the prediction is 2028 for it to be insolvent. That means there's not enough money to pay for all the care. 
that should matter to people, but apparently it doesn't currently. I didn't know this until I read your piece. Somehow I missed this too, but now people say, well, how can the something not be funded? Because Congress can just wave a magic wand and make more money. Well, that's kind of true budgeting wise. I didn't realize this until I read your piece, but it almost went and solved it last year. They brought in 362 billion, 360 went out and people say $2 billion, but in the grand scheme of things, that's kind of a close call on the budget line item, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And we're, we always do that, right? We're very, very close to it, but we're not there yet. So people don't feel it. But it's not the first time this is happening. Like this has happened in the past too, in the 90s. And you know, at the time there was a fix. The problem is when Medicare was set up in the first place, there, people were going to were be on Medicaid, Medicare only for a few years because life expectancy was quite short then. And so we, we thought we could afford um, this generous program. But now that people get to live, you know, a couple decades into their retirement, which is fantastic news, it just makes the program extremely expensive. And we haven't kind of changed the configuration of, you know, the financing of it, which means that there's just not enough money now. And it's not just the money part of this. Uh, The population is a lot bigger now than it was when this program first came in. We were up to 62 million beneficiaries. That number is going to continue to rise um, is that a good way to talk about this? Because here's the thing. We start talking, you know, you're a policy person, you know, this, you start talking to people, you know, billions of dollars and 20 year plans and t- their, their eyes just glaze over. People can't get their heads around that number. Should we maybe attack this from that point of view of like, Hey, we're up to 330 million Americans. We got 62 million beneficiaries. There's more of them and every American that works, you're paying for this. Would that maybe be a better way of attacking this? And maybe the fiscal policy side of this, just to get people to kind of get their heads around it. That is absolutely the way I want to go about it. I personally care about this because I see how much I pay for Medicare every month because that's taken out of my paycheck. And I don't even see the the part that my employer pays, but it's the same part. (laughs) So there's a lot of my compensation that goes directly to Medicare. And currently, beneficiaries on Medicare get three times as much from the program as what they put in. So Medicare beneficiaries love to think that they've earned it, right? Like they, their whole life, they contributed to Medicare and now they're just cashing out. But in reality, they're cashing out three times as much. It's kind of the best investment they could have ever made. So it bothers me because for people my age, um, we're putting a lot of money into it, but it's definitely not going to be there when we retire. So we're just giving this gift to, to the elderly and People love to complain about how we can't, you know, have houses now because they're too expensive. We don't have enough financial independence. Well, maybe this is one way of looking at it is this money is just being given to the older generation. Is that really fair? I I would think it's not. Right. But this is where the politics part of this comes into the policy discussion, because like you said, if you've watched that go out of your paycheck every year for 30, 40 years, whatever your working career is, you feel entitled to it. And they are to an extent. I don't know how we ever explain that to people because especially elderly people, they're like, look, I paid into this all my life. I deserve whatever they're going to give me. I get that. I mean, that's that's completely on a human level. Fine. How do you ever craft any kind of a policy initiative to get around that? Because I don't think you're going to make any change with that generation. That's also the most politically dominant generation. They have the highest output for voters like they're not going to do it. So is there something here where we have to just use it as like an example for the younger generation? Like, look, whatever reforms we do, there's somewhere you're going to have to just draw a line and say they're going to get theirs and everybody else is going to wind up another pot. I know that's politically, you know, dynamite. 
But isn't that the only option here is at some point you're just going to have to draw a line and go, okay, they get all theirs and everybody else, we're going to have to do something different. Yes, that's that's kind of where the piece is going is we want to show that the sooner we act, the less painful it's going to be because what we want to avoid is just feeling the pain directly. Like that's when people will start acting. That's when Congress will start making decisions is when there's not enough money. And truly what it means is providers like doctors and, and uh, nurses and hospitals will get less money to take care of those patients. So that will have a real impact. It will mean that premiums will go up or out-of-pocket costs will go up for Medicare beneficiaries because it's not free care that they get, right? But it's heavily subsidized care. So they will feel it that way too. It's kind of, I think that, you know, the best solution will probably be a mixture of all these things. What worries me that uh, is that eventually we'll just have gimmicks. Like you said earlier, we'll just get, have budget gimmicks and it's going to be a short-term fix. But we really can't afford that because in the long run, the, the problem just keeps compounding. Now, we've done this before, like we talked about before. Congress loves to legislate by emergency because it puts people on the spot and they can get things done easier. Um, I'm old enough to remember it. Uh, 98 midterms on top of the impeachment stuff, which was the top item. Uh, Medicare reform was the big ticket item. That's the first election I voted on. I remember it well. There was a, a fear of insolvency. So in 1997, 98, running up that 98 midterm, they actually did a fix on that. But as you started talking about in this piece, if they wait to the last minute because of the way this is structured and because of the severity of the problem now, this isn't something where Congress is really going to be able to last minute fix it effectively, is it? No, it's not. It's going to take time anyways. And there's going to be a bit of I I think there's going to be a bit of time during which there won't be enough money. Right. Or maybe we'll just find this gimmick. But then long term, we should really be kicking in with um, uh, real reforms. So some things could include like. There, there are things that we don't like, right? Raising taxes is probably going to happen. Raising the Medicare payroll tax just so that we can um, replenish this fund. But in the long run, it's really structurally, there's a lot of waste in Medicare. I think we all know that. Um, and so then that's like one way of thinking about, you know, maybe there are ways to cut the costs of hospitals. And then there's a lot of industry capture too, where, um, you know, we're providing services to the elderly that maybe they don't need or actually make them sicker. There too, we, we need to start actually looking under the hood and asking, what is it that Medicare beneficiaries are getting and is it really helping them? Yeah, and we've seen some supporting court uh, rulings lately about the paybacks and the, and the structure of that funding. There's a lot of moving pieces here, isn't it? Because I know we're talking legislatively here and puzzle, po- legislatively and policy-wise here, but there's a Supreme Court piece here because a lot of this stuff gets adjudicated. The healthcare industry is a massive industry. They got a lot of lobbying power. They got a lot of lawyers. What's a realistic time frame? Like if you just started today and even if everybody was on board, wouldn't it be like two, three years just getting any kind of meaningful legislation done? It seems to me like this is such a big problem. This isn't going to be like an omnibus bill or even like the ACA where they can write one bill and deal with all this, can they? Correct. And this is what prompted me and my co-author, Lisa Grabber, to, to write the piece. We were really bothered by the fact that this was not underway. Like there has barely been any discussion of this issue on the Hill. And like you said, it takes a long time to build consensus around a solution on the Hill. And so now is now is just already too late. But if we're going to be addressing the issue, the conversations need to happen ASAP. Like we can't stress that enough. That, that happened much sooner. Like you said, in the 90s, the conversation had been going on for years before they actually passed a, resol- a, a solution. Right. And, you know, you do the policy stuff. 
but you know, you also live here, you watch TV, you watch streaming. I'm seeing all kinds, you know, the abortion ads are all going up now because of that. I'm seeing lots of economic ads, lots of political ads about gas prices. I do politics for a living. I don't see any discussion whatsoever about this topic. And I'm looking for it. Like I have you on today. This is the second time you've been on talking about this topic with us. So we're talking about it. I don't hear anybody talking about this outside the policy realm and just kind of the, the nerdy wonky folks. Do you? Uh, no, I don't. Not at all. And partly is it is because, I mean, two things we just discussed that it was not people didn't per- perceive the emergency yet. So it feels like it's a non, non-issue. And whoever goes out first talking about it is going to look like a bad guy, right? Because who wants to strip people of their Medicare? No one likes that. So it's not uh, popular. It's going to be painful no matter what. So there's no incentive for anyone to do anything about it. Like there's no credit that can be taken for a verdict, a crisis that people never felt. So that's one aspect. I think that's just not uh, helping. And it's it's bipartisan. It doesn't stir up, um, you know, the, the, the rage of either side. It will be something that people need to come together um, to fix. And so I think that's also difficult because bipartisanship is not very popular these days. Yeah, but we, we also know how that goes with when when the American public realizes what's happening here, there's going to be rage on a uh, probably unprecedented level. Uh, Liz Amidro joining us. We're going to take a quick break. OK, that's the problem. She's got some solutions and some ideas to talk about it. We always like to have both ends here. So we're going to talk about some of the things we may be able to do about fixing this, what Congress can do and other things like that. Also, some policy stuff that's not overly complicated for this complex problem. Elise Amidro, great friend of ours on the program. More with her as her tale continues right after this. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Hertel. We're talking a little healthcare policy, specifically the time bomb that is Medicare and Medicaid uh, looming on the horizon. Our good friend, Elise Amidro, joining us. All right. We talked about the problem. Look, and again, this is a problem. Everybody knows it's a problem. Just nobody's talking about it because it's not, you know, right in front of everybody's faces. What's some of the things we can do now? We know the congressional makeup is going to let's just project a little bit. Let's assume we have a split Congress and White House again. President Biden's got two more years. We're assuming the Republicans will probably get at least the House, maybe the Senate. We'll see. So let's say the next two years, we're probably not going to get any kind of big ticket legislation like that. That puts us to 2024. That's the very narrow window to try to get something done here, isn't it? It is short. Yes. And the we, we keep predicting when Medicare Party is going to be insolvent uh, until so last year's reports from the Medicare trustees said that it was going to be 2026. They've adjusted it upwards this year to 2028. 
So it seems like we have a lot of time, right? Because, you know, last year that would have made it, you know, two years or three years to, to act. Now it's a little bit more uh, time, but the reality is uh, we can do it soon enough. So yeah, we, we need to really start thinking about things that we can do. And one of them would be like, as um, like I was suggesting in my piece, not something that is uh, a good solution in my view, but maybe a necessary one at, uh, at first is just to raise the Medicare tax that uh, is just going to be very painful for people, especially as we go into a potential recession, as inflation is really high, that just means less money in their pockets. Um, but that might be one painful way of addressing that, at least in the short term. While we think about longer term financing solutions, like, is there a different way that we can put people, um, like, you know, help, help people access hospital services, not with Medicare Part A, but with Medicare Part C, which is Medicare Advantage. So it's the, the plan that allows um, beneficiaries to actually choose what plan they would like to have. This is a much more uh, financially sustainable plan, and it gives beneficiaries much more um, ownership over their care and over the coverage that they have. So I think that's actually a nice solution is to put people in a place that's not going to be affected by the insolvency. And in a perfect world, this would be part of a larger healthcare reform of the whole system, because part of the problem here is, and you're a policy person, so you can speak to this, kind of explain it to me like I'm five, because again, this is really complicated, but you know, the trust fund and Medicare, that works. It's not necessarily in parallel. It kind of interweaves with the private healthcare system as well. You can't really separate the two. So isn't there going to be a huge problem here where you're trying to reform one without reforming the greater overall system? So no matter what you're going to do, you're going to kind of wind up in the shell game where you're fixing one problem and causing three more. Is that, is that an accurate way to describe that? It is. So long as we rely on the government governing the way healthcare is done in the U.S., which is truly the case, uh, we'll keep, you know, it's a whack-a-mole, give me whack-a-mole. We, we just keep pushing the problem to other parts of the system. So exactly to your point, Medicare pricing influences the rest of the system, right? So if we change something to how Medicare pays for things, we'll see it ripple into the rest of the, of the, um, the system. So if we lower reimbursement rates, like if the federal government decides we can't pay as much for healthcare services. Now it needs to be, you know, this lower rate because we're to, to fix the insolvency, then it might mean that private payers are going to pay more. So their prices are going to go up. Or it might mean that some hospital just won't be able to survive. So then we'll have some hospitals go down, right? So I think all those uh, cases will be made. And the, the fear is just that the, the biggest players, the ones that have really captured the market, will get to dictate those terms because they hold a lot of political sway. So I don't think we're in a really good situation, but the, the sooner we can start talking about those things, the more we have time to let the best arguments rise to the surface and at least know what we're getting into when we pass reforms. Yeah. Okay. So let's put this on a, on a personal level so folks can understand it. If you have a household budget and you're insolvent or you're running out of money or you're running into debt, most people know, well, the first thing you do is you try to cut expenses somewhere. Is there anything in here where we can try to cut some expenses, either the executive branch or the legislative branch? I know the court system is just washed with you know, debates over the reimbursement system. That's kind of a separate thing that's out of everybody's hands right now. Where, where could they do some cuts in a practical way that might actually, because people will get on the board with that before they probably will with the tax raises. So that's probably where they're going to go first because, you know, path of least resistance. Where do you think that might take shape? Well, I don't know. I feel like there's going to be a lot of resistance because it's a smaller group of interest uh, interest groups, right? We'll have hospitals that will not want to have the cuts, but it, it is 
that's actually a good way of doing things is to just let Medicare beneficiaries feel the cost a little more. Like I said earlier, they get a lot of benefits out of Medicare. And that's been uh, a situation that is increasingly unsustainable. So Medicare beneficiaries should like perhaps put their hand to their, you know, to their uh, wallets a little bit more often when it comes to their healthcare so that they can make, be, be more involved in their healthcare decisions, right? Like if they know that when they go and receive care, this is how much they're going to be owing, then they might just, you know, make a real trade-off kind of decision between the money that they might be sending and the care they're going to receive. Like, is it really worth it to them? So that's one way of, of putting back price signals into the system and letting people really decide if, if care is valuable to them or is it if it's worth the amount that it's going to cost. I think that's going to be a better way of reinjecting market forces into this system. Uh, should we call it trust fund or is there a better way to discuss the trust fund than just calling it a trust fund? Because people think trust fund, they think, oh, well, there's this big pile of money just sitting there waiting. And that's not really what's happening there, is there? It, it is. I mean, there is money, but it's being depleted. What's depleting it? Is it just government incompetence? Is it just government creep? I, I, you know, here's another area of this problem where it's been going on for so long, people don't even think about it anymore. It's like, okay, well, what actually depletes it? Is it is it Congress picking the pocket? Is it just not paying attention to it? What's the factors that have depleted it so badly? It's just like we're we're spending so much more out of the of the trust fund that comes in through revenue. So the, that's why like they're, we're running out of what's in in the fund. So the longer we go with this system, the, the less money there is in it. Yeah. Okay. I know it's hard because you said it, but give us a date. What's some of the drop dead dates here that we really need to be paying attention, especially voters, because we know we work on, we talk about 2024 is probably the next time we're going to have any kind of legislation going through. Is it 2030 like you've talked about? I've seen some people talk about 2028 and 2027. Give us some deadlines and dates for the voters to be paying attention to here. 2028 is really when the uh, insolvency hits, according to this year's Medicare report, trustees report. Now, I think they're being a bit optimistic because last year, the, the year was lower. It was 2026. That's when they thought it was going to go bankrupt. And it was because of the, the fact that people were going back to the hospital after not having received care um, in the, during, during the pandemic. But now they're looking at you know, a more stable use of resources. And also they think that so many people um, passed away from COVID, sadly, that they won't be receiving care either. So that will lead to less um, expenses. I'm not convinced that that's entirely true, uh, but I do think that 2028 is kind of an, op- I do think that's an optimistic uh, date. It might be sooner than that. So we're really looking at very, you know, a very near future kind of um, situation. Yeah, it's it's looking bleak, but uh, the good news is we have representative government. We could do something about it if we want to. Bad news is we usually get the government we deserve and we haven't paid attention to this. And here we are. Uh, Elise Amidro joining us as always. We really appreciate your time. You have great knowledge on this subject. Let folks know how they can follow you and what you've got going on until we see you again, hopefully with some good news about this. But I fear this will be an ongoing topic, my friend. That's right. I'm only trying to shed light on it. So hopefully more people will be picking up the, the um, this issue. So you can follow me on LinkedIn. Actually, that's the only place where I write um, at my name is Elise, E-L-I-S-E, last name Amedro, A-M-E-Z hyphen D-R-O-Z. We are linking to the piece uh, in the show notes. Make sure you read it in its entirety and make sure you're following her. Thank you so much for the time today. It's great to see and talk to you again. I know it uh, slid into your busy schedule, so thank you for the time and we'll talk again real soon, my friend. 
Thank you very much. Thank you. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.